Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Tuesday, May 28, 2013, and even though it's not Monday, we're doing a listener feedback show because Monday was a Memorial Day, and I took a day off because I needed a day off because, well, we just had the first ever TSP workshop at the Spierko Homestead, the Woodcore Gardening Workshop. We had 20 folks here. Uh, we put in uh, four really awesome, really long, really big hoogle uh, beds, wood core beds, whatever you want to call them, with uh, contour paths, and we had a blast. I'll give you a little bit of an AAR on that in uh, just a bit after I take care of our housekeeping and our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? It might be shocking. It might be earth-shattering to hear that Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is a great source for Berkey water filtration systems. And I'll tell you what, if you need a Berkey or you need parts for your Berkey or you need filters for your Berkey, go see Jeff at Directive21.com. That is Directive21.com. Or go to the survivalpodcast.com and find Jeff's banner and click on it because Jeff is one of the number one resellers of Berkeys in the world. And because of that, he has great pricing, and he's like a madman with service. And that's why he's one of the best producers. So don't be the guy that got your Berkey stuff from the non-Berkey guy that just became a Berkey distributor yesterday because his brother told him about it on the Internet or something like that at a gun show. Go to the source. Go to the Berkey guy. And I'll tell you what, while you're there, you'll find that the Berkey guy isn't just Berkey water filter systems. He's got a lot of other great stuff including Mountain House Food, and if you want a discount on Mountain House, you usually got to wait till certain times of the year or something like that, and everybody has it on sale at the same time. Well, Jeff, if you're part of our member support brigade, you can get a Mountain House discount any day of the week. Check it out, directive21.com, and for the discounts, check your support brigade members area, the benefits area of your members area, if you're a member. If not, I'll tell you how you can become one in just a bit. Next up today, we have... The Free State Project. The Free State Project is a group of folks that are getting as many people as they can to move to the Free State, the Free State of New Hampshire, and help make New Hampshire into the freest state in the republic. You can learn more at freestate.org. Um, actually, that would be freestateproject.org. I'm sorry I messed the URL up there. It has been a, a long week and a long weekend, and it's been fun. And, again, I'll give you a little bit more about that in a bit. I do want to remind you guys, though, in addition to the Free State Project, which is looking to create liberty in our lifetime by moving people to the awesome state of New Hampshire. And I do think New Hampshire is a great state. I really do. I think it's uh, got a lot going for it. If I was going to live in the Northeast, I think New Hampshire would be the place that I would be. I would say out of everything up there, you know, from uh, – uh, you don't even want to mention Maryland because it's – God, it's a disaster, but, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, come on, guys. I mean, the Northeast, it would be all about New Hampshire if I was up there, but uh, I'm not. I'm in the South, and I, I do think that Texas has a lot going for it, and I think there's a lot of other states that have a lot going for them that aren't New Jersey or California or Illinois, and I think that the Republic is built on freedom of movement, and that's why I set up walkingtofreedom.com. Go there and vote, because I think the voting's about to close on the uh, naughty list. The states that we're going to basically target is, hey, this is where you should leave. Where should you go? Wherever works best for you, and walking to freedom is how you can find out more about what state is right for you and make connections and find people that will introduce you around, tell you about job opportunities, all kinds of great stuff. 
basically everybody except the bottom tier of states gets a board for their own state where you can be an ambassador for your state. And that means even if you're very happy in Alabama and you don't want to go anywhere else, well, hey, get on the Walking to Freedom uh, forum and help others decide if Alabama's right for them. And if Alabama's not right for them, it's better that they know that and find a place that really works. So, uh, well, I'd love to have you here in Texas. The spirit of walking to freedom is simply walking away from tyranny. Check it out at walkingtofreedom.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll help be supporting the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And you'll get discounts like I mentioned earlier. The Berkey guy gives you a discount. I'd say uh, most of our sponsors give discounts. And about 30 other companies provide discounts. And if you're buying stuff in the self-reliant, self-sufficiency world, that membership will pay for itself. And just about everybody that is a member has told me, as long as they are actually buying stuff uh, at all, so anything from seeds to tactical stuff to gear to equipment to long-term storage food, the stuff to process your food with, that it's inevitable that the membership pays for itself. And that makes me happy because... I designed it to be that way in the first place. That was the entire point because I believe if you give a customer something that has enough value, um, that it, it, it's self-sustaining, that they'll remain a customer for life. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but I think we've pulled it off. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters gets even better for you if you email me before, not after, but before you join, I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service, and it'll cost you even less, and that means you save even more money, and that's just a thank you for your service. With that, I do have the oh, the email address to send that to, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, and a subject line, put in service discount. With that wrapped up, I do want to um, get into the main topic of today's show. Two things that I have that aren't necessarily feedback but just things that are, you know, time-sensitive and need to be talked about now. One, yesterday was Memorial Day, and I didn't do the post. I almost do I do the same post every year. I just didn't get to it this year. I was pretty worn out. But um, every year I had, in the past I've done a post on TSP about Memorial Day, and I'm just going to say it this year. I see a lot of people saying this is a time to thank our men and women who serve this country, and there's never a bad day to do that, but that's not what Memorial Day is. Memorial Day is remember the fallen. It's not thank a soldier day. It's remember the fallen day. It's about those who gave everything and didn't come home, or if they came home, they came home in a body bag. Because generally the flag-draped casket is for later. And um, there's, there's something there that I think gets lost uh, with drinking beer and setting off fireworks and saying, aren't our troops great? Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a celebration day. It's a day to reflect. It's a day to mourn. It's a day to remember. I know it's a day late to say it, but I felt that it needed to be said. So we're done with that. Next up, I want to talk a little bit about the after-action review, so to speak, of our first TSP event, and I want to talk about it because I, I want folks to realize that we're going to be doing more of these. I think we already have, we, you know, I'm going to tell you guys, we're trying to figure out exactly what dates the Jeff Lawton thing's going to be, but there's going to be two of those, and th that'll be great, but there's going to be more of these little ones, these two, three-day workshops. Uh, there was a guy here that has a really cool way to do aquaponics with a siphon, uh, uh, flush, siphon flush system that is 
It's foolproof. It can't fail. It's impossible for it to fail and has no moving parts. I'm putting in two garden ponds into this, uh, into this little um, uh, showcase garden that I'm doing. And it looks really cool so far. But I immediately after seeing what he was doing, thought, well, we can just take those ponds and make them part of an aquaponics system. So probably in September-ish, we'll be doing a workshop on that. I am thinking about doing a workshop uh, on the creation of this miniature forest garden sometime this summer with one issue, I guess, so to speak. That issue is that we wouldn't be planning very much. It's just figuring it out in the design. The reason I'm considering doing a workshop, though, is what I want to talk about now, the value that this event had beyond people learning how to use levels and how to build these beds and how the wood cores work and seeing the project. And I think that was, I think most of the people that came to this event could have pulled it off, but maybe lacked the confidence to just do it. And I think seeing the, you know, the part that I did by hand and then seeing the mechanized way that we accelerated that, because I did five beds by hand and uh, it took me about two and a half months to do. And they were not all very long. Some of them were only 10 feet. Some of them were 20 feet. One was like 38 feet. We put in four beds in two days, despite the rain, with a little excavation machine called a termite. It's like a mini backhoe. Uh, even with all the rock and all, we were able to knock that out. And we probably only worked a half day the second day to get it done. We would have worked a little longer, but the rain made things so muddy it was impossible to clean stuff up. And uh, we didn't get the last bed fully planted because of that. But when it was done, you could stand back and you could see the system. And beyond seeing the system, you saw what it looked like before it was constructed. So I think people got a lot of value from that. I think everybody that walked away could now go use a level and can understand that, you know, when it comes to contour, you find some little weird jogs and bells and stuff like that. But in the end, you find the main frame contour of the landscape, and that's what you build into. So I think that was great. And that was what I wanted people to learn. And I think people got a real intensive understanding of what I mean when I say polyculture when they saw how much went into one bed and they saw what was great is you could see a bed that had been there for about 10 days and then we planted one kind of the same way so that was great but I think what, what the biggest value was was the hours and hours of people talking to each other sharing ideas playing playing pool and darts uh, hanging out having beers campfire time this group left with a desire to remain in touch with each other. So even though if I do this thing with this showcase garden, it won't be an intensive planning experience, I might do it just for the gathering experience. And I'll be able to charge less for this one because I won't have to pay an operator and rent a piece of equipment. And a lot of the stuff that's hard infrastructure to support this event is now been somewhat recovered. So um, I'm thinking about doing that. It would be in the heat of summer, though. I'd like to hear from folks that would be interested in coming to do that. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking like July. Um, it's as bad as it gets, but it might still be fun. I don't know. I, I, I might just push that one out into like October. Um, we'll see. And we got to see when the Jeff event's going to fall now because it might get moved out a little bit, which would be good because it won't be the end of freaking August and we all think we're going to die. I just talked to Jeff <laughs> last night about that. So we probably won't do any events during the summer. Um, the only reason I'm even considering it is because how awesome this experience was. And I'd like to encourage you guys, and it's not just about, you know, me getting 
people to come to the event because I can get people to come to the event. But I want some of the folks that maybe think, well, I don't know how much I'll learn. You'll learn a massive amount, and it won't just be from whatever the workshop component is. It's from your fellow attendees. Um, we have a private email list set up now uh, for, our, for all the attendees. We're setting up a YouTube account and a Flickr account so that attendees can upload videos and pictures, and that will be publicly. The ability to upload to them won't be public. That will be just for the attendees. But the, the video and the, uh, and the photographs will be available for public viewing. We should have that pretty much up and running by tomorrow as the group comes into the private email list. But all I can tell you is that almost every single person that was here was concerned with staying in touch with the people that they met while they're here when they left. It was only basically three days. It was like a half day Friday or a half day Thursday, not even a full half day, but an evening Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then breakfast on Sunday, and everybody was gone by about noon. Uh, but I think it was a great bonding experience, and I think a lot of people really feel more connected now because of it, and I'd love to see you at some of the events that we'll be doing in the future. I'm even talking to some people about doing some things on other properties as well, uh, where, I mean, my only control there is I, my under, only concern there is I don't have the control of making sure the event goes off well. Um, basically, I said, too, to the people that came, I know I'll screw some things up, and uh, I don't think we really did. I think we pulled it off, and uh, I'd just like to say right now, those of you that were here know how true this is. That could not have happened without Dorothy. Um, Dorothy made this event work. Uh, she did an amazing job, and uh, she made me very, very proud to be her husband. And we had some helpers that, that were here as, like, semi-students, semi-staff uh, that did double duty with that, and they really helped a ton. And uh, I had the events catered by Spring Creek Barbecue and On the Border. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to cater an event and you're choosing between those, go with On the Border. Don't even use Spring Creek. They were okay. I mean, everybody was happy with the food, but I ended up throwing three pounds of sausage on the grill to make sure there was enough meat for everybody. And I think with the, you know, equipment operator and, you know, some other folks that showed up to help out, we had a guest instructor who was a former intern of Jeff Lawton's come. Uh, you know, maybe there were 25 people there, and we ordered for 30, and there was barely enough meat. There was plenty of the other crap, but there was barely enough meat. To, you know, to, to meet the need of 25 when we ordered for a 30 headcount. So uh, not my biggest glowing review. But we're going to do more of these, and we're going to have a lot of fun with them, and, and maybe we'll even look at doing some more workshop-style things that could be done in a hotel. So if we want to do something in the summer, people can have air conditioning and what have you. Uh, we did get a lot of rain, but we worked around it, and uh, it probably helped us out temperature-wise a great deal. So that was the event uh, I wish more of you guys could have been here for that. Now, on with the show, as they say. Um, I want to talk to you guys about something that I just thought was a little bit funny and a little bit cool. And uh, it was something that I would have never uh, come up with on my own. Uh, and it probably pissed off a bureaucrat. This is going all the way back 13 years now to the 2000 census, uh, but uh, I want you to listen to this, just a little humor to kick off your work week. Uh, during the 2000 census, I was working at Fort Riley, Kansas, living by myself just off post in a small house during the week, commuting to the SGF every weekend. I kept getting notes left on my front door by a census worker with her business card attached, demanding that I fill out the census 
long form. I'd already filled out and returned the first census form I'd received, but the only info I provided as required by law was how many people lived at that address. Apparently, my address was one of the lucky ones randomly selected for in-depth data mining. After the fourth time finding a census note on my door, I wrote a memo, printed it out, stapled it to the last note she left, and left it for her on her next visit. She always came by when I was gone. The memo went like this. To whom it may concern, a request for the census long form to be filled out by the occupant of this dress has been received. This request is for the provision of data beyond what is required by law of U.S. citizens, and thus it may be considered a request for consulting services. My fee for consulting is $250 an hour. Due to known issues of excessive bureaucratic red tape and slow payment, I have a two-hour minimum fee for government entities payable by cash in advance only. If the Census Bureau desires to retain my consulting services, please con provide contact information with a direct phone number and email address for a Census Bureau official who is authorized to obligate funds for this purpose. Regards, and I won't give the guy his last name out because he probably doesn't want to have, but just regards Alan, right? Strangely, I never heard from her or anyone else from the Census Bureau ever again. So, I think it makes a lot of sense that the next time this happens, and they do it, what, every 10 years, so that'll be 2020. That's a while in the future. Keep that one in your brain pan. And uh, it kind of is disappointing that they won't be doing a census this year because, man, that just sounds like a lot of fun. But, you know, here's the other side of it. Who knows? How many listeners of the Survival Podcast there'll be by 2020? And who knows how many of those little notes might go out because uh, Alan showed his little twisted sense of humor and shared it with us and uh, gave us all kind of an evil, maniacal little idea there. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. So anyway, I've, I've been telling you guys for a long time now that there's an energy boom coming in America. And it, it's hard to believe because we have so many problems that... Uh, We could have a, uh, a prosperous period ahead before what I think will be an inevitable currency collapse. I, I really think that that's coming. Maybe collapse is the wrong term, a rebasing, because there's just no way on God's green earth that the numbers that these idiots have run up can ever actually be reconciled. It's not possible. Uh, the, 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 the number eventually just begins to run away with itself, and uh, they can only get away with it this long because they can print money. But it's not over yet, in, despite, in spite of what you may have heard from others. And I've said that one of the biggest reasons I know this is happening, I don't think, there's a lot of times I go, I think this is going to happen, I'm pretty sure they're going to do this, I've, I, I, I'm kind of kind of thinking this is going to happen, and then there's times when I go, this is what's going to happen. And one of the reasons I know this is going to happen is because of the extensive plans being made to export U.S. natural gas. Uh, that we're going to become the largest exporter of, of, of energy. Uh, it'll be in the form mostly of gas, but the U.S. is going to go from running an energy deficit to be the, being the largest exporter of energy uh, in the world by 2020. That's why Mitt Romney was confident to talk about U.S. energy independence and often couched it with North American energy independence, i.e. Canada and the tar sands. And the, the way the whole thing would add up together, we would be a net exporter of energy. And it's going to happen. And uh, they're enlarging the Panama Canal. And one of the chief reasons it's being done is so that gas raiders can go through it. 
that that tells you a lot right there. The it's the largest construction project in the world, basically. Um, but here's some more supporting evidence. This is from the New York Times. In a sign that the United States shale gas boom is making global waves, two Japanese conglomerates and a big French energy player signed agreements on Friday to invest $7 billion in liquefied natural gas project in Louisiana. The companies Mitsui and Mitsubishi of Japan and GDF Suez of, ooh, Suez, Suez Canal, huh? Of France each plan to take a 16.6% stake in the gas export plant being developed at Hackery, Louisiana. The complex is being built by Semper Energy, a company based in San Diego with annual revenue of about $10 billion. The companies agreed last year to help develop the project. GDF Suez predicts the plant will begin operations in 2017. The company's final decision to make their investment will depend on the projects receiving necessary permits. GDF Suez. Has anybody noticed that all of the Obama war on coal doesn't apply to natural gas? Anybody notice that? They need the right permits. You watch them get the right thing. I mean, no problem. Get no permits for this. None. Because the gas people gave more money to Obama than the coal people. That's all it comes down to. And gave more money. And the gas companies have been lining the pockets of not Obama and the Democrats, but lining the pockets of all the ass clowns for several years now. Go look up the campaign contributions, not so much of the president, but of the individuals and what's been done as far as, you know, this is the other thing to look at. When you look at fundraising, you really got to look at the fundraising that didn't go to Joe Blow, senator, or Joe Jerkoff, president. You got to look at the contributions that go to the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee, the, the, the party itself. There's more control there than anywhere else, because if you can control committee assignments, which is how they do this, then you can control an awful lot about whatever does or does not see the desk of the president. So go look at that if you want to understand what's been going on here. International companies responding to ravenous global appetite for natural gas, particularly in Japan and Europe, want access to shale gas from the United States, <laughs> which has emerged as an important new source over the last few years. But because the United States has only recently shifted from being a gas importer to being self-sufficient in the fuel, the government has not yet agreed to allow exports except in a few cases and to the 20 countries which with it has free trade agreements, including Panama and Costa Rica, because they're using the energy in the construction of the canal so that they can ship it to other countries because they're going to do it. Export approval under consideration for several projects by the Energy Department will be necessary before the potential shale gas can be fully realized. On Friday, the department approved a Texas project called Freeport LNG. It has also signed off on a facility being built by Shenang Energy at Sabine Pass in Louisiana. They expect to start exporting in 2015. But international companies are still invest are investing all the same, betting that the United States shale gas will eventually be able to go on to the global market. Of course it will. In a statement, Semper Energy estimated that the foreign partners would be putting up $6 billion to $7 billion in return for just under half the equity in the project, which is forecast to yield 12 million metric tons of liquefied national gas annually for 20 years. In return, they will receive all the gas. Semper will retain a stake at just over 50%. Quote, these agreements represent a major step forward in the development of our LNG export project, Semper's president, Mark A. Snell, said in a statement. For international players, the attractions of the U.S. shale gas are a large potential volume 
and relatively low cost of extracting it. Other foreign companies that have lined up American supplies include Korean company Kongas, Sumatero of Japan, and BG Group, the British-based company that is the big player in liquefied natural gas business. Natural gas prices in the United States are now about $4 per million British thermal units, the industry standards measure. European trade prices are 10 per million BTU range, with Asian about 15 per million BTUs. Long-term contract prices are often higher, and liquefaction adds to the cost of cost over plain gas. So, in other words, let me just break down, and you can read the rest of the article if you want to, what's going on here. We can produce gas for four bucks a unit, a thermal with the thermal unit uh, equ equivalent. They're paying ten to fifteen dollars, depending on where they're living in Europe or Asia. We can ship plenty and still sell at or below their market rate and make a crap ton of money. Okay, and these foreign companies want to control the flow into these other foreign nations. They want a piece of the transfer. And that is, that is what's, I mean, everything here that's being done with the big money on gas in this country today is being done with the object of exportation. Now, when you start exporting lots of things, you start importing finance and money. And we're going to have, and the gas prices, if anything, domestically will drop. When you have an economy, supercharged by stupid management of the money for a short time that works. So when we're printing money and creating liquidity, that will spur the economy. It has done so. Again, I mean, all one has to do is look at the stock market. The today is sitting at like 15.4, 15.5. And if you told, and I did tell you this, right? I said 14, 15,000 in the next couple of years. Several years, you're going, oh no, it's over. It'll never be like that again. And here it is. Well, that is... Um, that is exactly what's going on. Is all this money being pushed in is eventually finding its way into the equities market. A lot of money was made in the commodities market, specifically precious metals. That money has now been dumped, turned back into cash, and not sitting there as profit. What are we going to do with it? You push it back into equities. So you get that piece. Now, throw cheap energy into the mix. So we're producing so much gas, it's getting so cheap, And it's probably the cleanest way to reliably produce energy that we know of today. Natural gas is not a completely harmless uh, substance. It's not something that produces no pollution. But in comparison to coal or oil or nuclear, it's very, very clean, very, very reliable, very easy to manage, and produces a lot of energy. And we can produce tons of electricity with it. Electricity is one of the primary things we use for energy in this country. Pretty much it's that Or we're moving cars around with gas or diesel. Those are our two main things that we need done. So most of the coal we burn is to make electricity. So while the coal market's in decline, the gas market is expanding rapidly, and it's, it's something that's going to be able to get through a lot of the hurdles with pollution and permits and all this other stuff. So now we take a high liquidity situation in the market, we add cheap energy into it, and then we start to export the surplus energy and start bringing large amounts of imported money to this nation for the first time in a very long time. You're going to see a white-hot economy out of this. You really are. And a lot of people are going to get hurt at the end of this boom cycle. Don't be one of them, but I'm telling you, that's what's on the way. This is just more corroborating evidence, so to speak, that shows that to be the case. Okay, next up, um, I got this email just today, but I really wanted to share it with you. I'm going to put a link to a YouTube video.
And the part you're going to want to watch starts at about 10 minutes in. And it talks about grape harvesting and keeping grapes fresh. And playing this video just really won't work online. So I didn't strip the audio off of it or anything like that to play on air. The basic thing, though, is that these folks would grow tremendous numbers of, of grapes. And not just for wine, for fresh eating grapes. But this is during the Victorian era, so they did not have refrigeration. What they did is they had these big stone buildings where they stored their grapes. And they could store their grapes for months on end, fresh, and be just as good as when they were hanging on the vines without any refrigeration whatsoever. They built these racks, and the rack would hold like a bottle, like a, like a wine bottle at about a 45-degree angle. I know what you're thinking, that's so you can fill it with wine, flip it around, and keep the cork wet. And yeah, but that's not how they use these ones. The bottles go in the other way. So the bottles sit there at an angle of about 45 degrees, and when they harvest the grapes, instead of the way like I did it when I was a kid, we would always cut the, the, the grape cluster right at the top of the vine, they would cut about you know a one-foot-long piece of vine right off with the grape. So you're now holding a piece of grape vine with a grape cluster hanging off of it. You trim the end just like you put flowers in a vase, and then slide the stem of the vine into the bottle long enough to go almost to the bottom of the bottle. And inside the bottle was just water with a little bit of charcoal to keep the water fresh. And these grapes apparently would sit there for months on end, completely fresh. And there would be this big room, this big stone room, where you kept your grapes if you had a large vinery. And you could go in there months after harvest and still have fresh grapes. That's incredibly cool, isn't it? And it makes me wonder, are there other fruits that this could be done with? I think of things like um, alum olive and gumi, uh, which, you know, you get a little branch. It's just loaded with these dadgone things. That could probably be done. Uh, seaberry, which is a very medicinal plant. And that would be a way that seaberry could be retained for a very long time in its fresh state. And it just seems like there's probably other things, but it, obviously this thing works great for grapes because it's ideal. Anyway, I'll put uh, the episode, it's episode 9 of Victorian Kitchen Garden, September, uh, in the show notes today. But it's again, it's about from 10 minutes to 12 minutes that you want to check out if you want to see just that part. Uh, here's a quick little one for you guys. A lot of you guys wanted to do the Jeff Lawton Permaculture Design Course, and you just... Uh, didn't have the cash to do it or didn't get in and, and, you know, maybe you'll take one somewhere else or take his if he does it online again. Um, but there is a free one you can take. Now it's not the same. It's probably not as good. Um, and I don't think it comes with an actual certification at the end of it, but it's free and it's pretty much a PDC run by uh, some folks that videoed it and made the videos available for free. You just register on their site. Here was the email. It says, uh, you ever hear of a regen the Regenerative Leadership Institute Permaculture Design Course? It's free. Seems like good info when I look at the courses. Says it meets the standards of Mollison's PDC. It's been around a while, since 2004. Don't have the cash for just PDC. Any reason not to take this course? And it's at permaculturedesigntraining.com. Permaculturedesigntraining.com. And there's a Facebook link. Anyway, I'll put a link to that site. I'm not endorsing it. I watched about 10 minutes of the introduction talk by uh, one of the instructors in the course, and I found it to be decent. It seemed like it was headed in the right direction, and it seemed like it was focusing, yes, we talk about problems in permaculture to, to make the case for it. That's always part of the initial uh, uh, initial stuff that's covered, but 
it's it's not overly political or any of the things I don't like to see in a PDC. So it seems all right. Any of you guys that take it can let me know your thoughts on it. Again, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying, hey, it's available. And if you've been wanting to get a good, solid permaculture education, you don't have the money or the time, this seems to solve both issues because you sign up for it and you go through it at your own pace and it doesn't cost anything. So it may help you enlighten yourself in a lot of ways to a lot of the components of permaculture design. I don't really have the time to spend going through uh, the entire course. I'm going through Jeff's right now kind of as a, a second PDC, and I don't have time for a third. So uh, anybody that, that has enough of a working knowledge to, to pass judgment on this thing as you go through it, uh, let me know. And uh, let me know if it's worth you know basically saying, yeah, this is good to go, or is it just okay? And I, my feeling is it's going to be somewhere between okay and really good. It's going to be somewhere in the middle there between those two extremes. And uh, that's pretty damn good for free and uh, what have you. It was shot in 2004, apparently, uh, but the coursework has largely stayed the same. So uh, you might want to check that again. The uh, website is permaculturedesigntraining.com. Uh, next, I want to let you guys know about something really cool that's uh, about to hit the market, and I'll put a link out and a post on it today. But um, the new Sentinel coins have been really, really popular, the, the, not the limited edition Ant Shield ones that we did. Uh, of course, those sold out in seven hours or something like that. But the regular 2013 Sentinels um, with the uh, Long Live the Republic Sentinel and Winged Front and the reverse with the uh, the musket uh, the AR and the, the Spartan sword and the Spartan shield and, and the statement, um, if 300 can stand, what can 55 million do, have been selling really, really well. Well, we have coming out a limited edition uh, proof in a, in a gorgeous display case that's um, just going to be awesome. And it's it's going to be one of those things that's not dirt cheap or anything. It's uh, They're 52 bucks a piece. And we're running a promotion where people that buy five uh, can get an autographed Sentinel poster from me that goes with that as well. Um, and I think a lot of people will buy one in spite of that. Uh, actually, our first 50 customers, will the first 50 people to buy one, um, will get the uh, the poster. And um, after that, you just get the, the proof with the case. And it is really, I mean, the, the guys over at the Mint, um, they did this really beautifully the way that they put this together and i think they're going to sell for right now if they were for sale they would be 52 bucks a piece so they're, they're about 30 bucks over spot and you know if, if this is something you want to add as a collector's piece please do so if you are going to you know get all mad at me and say you know i will never pay that much over the spot price of silver look we sell regular one ounce sentinels every day for $2.99 over spot a coin, and for members, $1.99 over spot, as long as the quantities are five or more. That's as competitive as anybody out there, especially on a custom-minted medallion. I, I tried to cover this last week when I did the show on silver, that there are overly numismatic purchases, and that's when you're buying a $1,000 coin because it's an MS-70, you know, O-series silver dollar. And then there are things that some people buy just because they want and I, I got to tell you, it actually angers me that there's people that are upset and pissed off that I would make something like this available at a premium. It, I didn't tell you to buy it. I'm not begging you to buy it. 
But I think some of you are going to look at it and go, that's really kick-ass. And I really want to have at least one of those. And maybe I want to get some of those, you know, well in advance Christmas gifts or what have you because this thing won't be around that long. It won't be around by Christmas time. I, I don't know how long we're going to keep it around. I actually don't make those decisions. The Mint does. Um, but it won't be around at Christmas time. And when you see this and you see the messaging and the lesson that it teaches It may be something that you want to add to your collection, especially with this coin done in a proof, because it's beautiful as a brilliant uncirculated. As a proof, it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. And uh, that actually is going to go live uh, in about 12 hours. So uh, that's going to go on sale tonight. And again, the first 50 customers are going to get the, uh, the poster signed by me in addition on their order. And uh, look for a post about that today and uh, check it out. And I think that when you see, again, the, uh, the display uh, that this thing's going to come with, it's going to be something that a lot of people are going to go, you know what, that's worth a few bucks extra um, to make part of, of you know, w what I'm doing and, and, and to have that uh, available uh, to show people what it, actually, you know, what it actually means to have one of these coins Uh, and, and what it's all about. And uh, as I look at it, I, I become more and more proud that we, you know, myself and, and Rob and his team together uh, collaborated and created this design. And uh, I, I think that it's going to be something that when we do eventually stop minting them, period, I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm going to do it at some point because I believe that preserves some of the collector value. Uh, and I don't, when I say stop minting them, I don't just mean stop minting the, the proofs. I mean stop minting the series. Um, it's going to be a very, very hard thing to do. And not because we're selling so many of them so fast, we, you know, that type of thing. Because it's just, uh, it'll be the end of a chapter uh, of something we've done. And uh, we'll just have to work really hard to come up with the next great thing. But again, the Sentinel proofs go on live tonight at... Uh, At midnight central standard time, I'll put out a post today with all the information and everything in it. So one of the things that I've, I've said over and over again, in spite of the fact that we're going to have this big boom, is that the U.S. is going to be losing its position of prominence in the world as the number one economic superpower that basically has its finger in the pie of every bit of trade in the world. And the way that we do that right now is that most business... Uh, it's supposed to be all business. It's done internationally. It's supposed to be done in dollars. I, I know. How did we? How did we ever get to the point where we got that much control? Well, uh, as we made certain changes, we we established the dollar as the world's reserve currency. So it generally works like this. Let's say that uh, France wants to buy oil from Turkey. So France would then convert their you know euros into dollars and trade with the Turks in dollars, and the Turks would then convert their dollars back to whatever they use in Turkey. I don't even know what the Turkish currency is. And, and, and the dollar would be used for the transaction, and that benefits us tremendously because we produce dollars. It would be like if people in, I don't know, Washington had to trade with people in Maine, but they had to use oranges to do the trade. Well, if you lived in California or Florida, that would be a pretty good deal for you. Um, because they would have to use your oranges just to get the trade done, even if they were trading, I don't know, Dungeness crabs for lobsters. 
And, and that is kind of this, this part of what's made us an economic superpower over the years is that holding of the reserve currency. And that more and more nations would just say, you know what, I know we have an agreement to do this, but we don't have to do this. In fact, I don't see any reason to do this at all anymore. And that a lot of the nations that would do it would even be nations we would think of as being very friendly to us. I mean, the last country I talked about doing this was Australia. And I, I think other than maybe Canada and the, in the United Kingdom, Australia would be our, our you know, tightest ally. In fact, I, I could make a case that in many ways Australia is probably a better ally to this nation than, than the U.K. is. Uh, in, in reality, in, in, in some very meaningful ways. But it would be a toss-up between Canada, the U.K., and Australia. Uh, another nation that we have very, very strong relationships with that we never view as being adversarial at all towards us is New Zealand. Well, New Zealand has joined their brother Australia in, in basically saying, you know what, China, yeah, we'll trade with you without dollars. Here we go. Uh, again, this is w Wall Street Journal. I mean, this isn't some conspiracy theory stuff. Uh, Wellington, New Zealand, seeking to help its exporters, New Zealand is negotiating with China to make their currencies directly convertible. A spokeswoman for Prime Minister John Key said Wellington's push is aimed at driving down costs for companies to do business with China, which is close to overtaking Australia as New Zealand's number one trading partner. Uh, talks are in the very early stages in progressing, the spokeswoman said, adding that the issues had been brought up during Mr. Key's visit to China last month. Officials at the People's Bank of China didn't return calls sinking comment. Direct convertibility between the Chinese yuan and the New Zealand dollar would end the need for New Zealand companies and currency traders to convert New Zealand dollars or yuan into U.S. dollars when making and receiving payments. New Zealand's two-way trade with China totaled $15.3 billion New Zealand dollars or $12.4 billion U.S. dollars in the year ended April 30th compared with New Zealand uh, $16.8 billion with Australia. The government data showed last week most of New Zealand's exports to China are agricultural products, particularly milk powder, meat, and wool, while most of its imports from there are computers, mobile phones, and clothes. Trade relations took a knock earlier this month when China temporarily blocked millions of dollars of New Zealand meat from entering the country it, as it bolstered scrutiny of imports after a spate of mainly homegrown food safety scandals. So the Chinese had problems with their food safety domestically and, 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 and held off on imports to say, hey, see, we're doing something. Isn't that, you know, the, the bureaucracy is the same crap everywhere. Beijing is undertaking a long, gradual campaign to establish the yuan as more market-oriented international currency. China State Council or Cabinet said in a statement this month that the country would draft a plan to allow the yuan to become fully convertible. Meanwhile, the People's Bank of China, guiding the currency higher, had set the median point of its permitted daily trading ban last week at the strongest level ever. Oh, there's the little buried tidbit that you never see in the financial side analysis. Let me read that to you, and then I'm going to take you through the Jack Spirico time machine back to what I've been telling you for years, okay? The People's Bank of China is guiding the currency higher and set the median point of its permitted daily trading band last week at the strongest level ever. Okay, let me explain what that means to you. The People's Bank of China is their Federal Reserve, but their Federal Reserve is not like our Federal Reserve, which is neither federal nor reserving anything. They are just a group of private bankers controlling our money. The People's Bank of China is actually the government of China. Their Federal Reserve truly is 
federal in the sense that you mean it when you say it. In other words, it is a government entity controlling the nation's currency. It doesn't control the value of its currency by just simply printing more or pulling more in. It just says this is where we're setting the value. The government will view the money worth this much. And since everything you buy in this nation has somehow has the government controlling it, we get to control our prices. And since we have 1.7 billion people, well, the value of our currency is respected throughout the rest of the world anyway. And New Zealand will take it. So there. Right? That's their attitude. And when you have a 1.7 billion person economy and you're growing and you're technologically advanced, you can get away with that. You can do it. So China has just basically increased the value of its currency. Generally what China has done is taken a very specific delta from the U.S. dollar because we're their number one export partner. They sell to us where, where we sell quite little to them. They sell a lot to us. But what are they getting ready to buy from us very, very soon? Well, they're getting ready to buy natural gas. When you're exporting, right, when you're selling out, it's great that your currency is relatively weak because that drives down your labor cost for the country receiving your items and means that your imports can compete well with their domestic marketplace and you can be a strong exporter, okay? When you're importing, you want your money to be stronger, okay, so that the, the trade partner that's sending it in gets that advantage because that means you're buying cheap. Got it? So they're increasing the strength of their currency, not by letting it float in the market, just by changing the number because that's how they do things in China. Now, what I said years ago is when the economic endgame comes around, that China will just float its currency value up. And once they do that, they've, they've sprung the economic trap on the United States. Here it's beginning. And it's not coming tomorrow. This is a very strategic game, economic game that China is playing. They are positioning themselves to be the number one economic power in the world by somewhere around 2020 to 2025. And they may be there quicker, but it won't be that meaningful until about 2020, 2025. It's not just going to be, well, they're a little bit advanced uh, over countries like the United States in, in, in their economic power. It's going to be majorly advanced. They are setting up to be the economic leaders of the world. And whether or not they pull it off exactly as planned, we shall see. But they're being very very smart about it. Now, sometimes when I say this, people think I'm saying, well, we should be like China, and I'm not, especially when it comes to freedom and how they treat their citizens. Economically, though, some of the things they're doing make a lot of sense. Okay, While we are investing in garbage, they are investing in agriculture, they are investing in mining, And they are investing in production. And I don't just mean domestically, I mean internationally. China is on a modern form of colonialization in Africa right now. This is modern colonialism. You know, postmodern colonialism was when you went in, you just took shit. Okay? Modern colonialism is you go in and you buy shit. And that's what they're doing. And they're looking to do it everywhere in the world. And they've got some really big time power players along their side. If you look at their friendly relationship with India, who is also a fairly good ally of the United States, 
right? But when you take China and India collectively and you look at how much they control, you've got an amazing superpower, potential superpower block. And then when we add in the Brazilians and the Russians, and now South Africa acting as the gateway into Africa for these nations, you're ending up with an economic global position that puts the United States distantly behind many of the other nations in the world. Now, people say, well, what about this big energy boom? Okay, Saudi Arabia has been a huge, huge source uh, of oil for not just the U.S., but for the world. They're a very wealthy nation. Where do they stack up in the global economic superpower race, though? And the answer is they don't. Now, does this mean that India and China don't have any problems in the future? They have huge problems. Their population is so... Ex their very strength in their numbers is also a problem of excess. How do you make sure that many people are gainfully employed and fed and looked after? But there is some level of population mediation occurring in China and India beyond you know, the, the brutal one-child policy where they act like they're throwing children in the street or something like that, which is not what's happening. It's just lies your government told you. But and, and there are people that end up with more than one child in China, and it's not like they're beaten to death for it or something like that. There's allowances made here and there. And, and no one just goes, okay, well, you got to get rid of your baby. It doesn't happen. But it's it's more of a, this is what we want you to do. And the Chinese people are very uh, generally compliant with that. But it's also the case that when you get a society prosperous enough, birth rates go down. It's been happening in the United States for years. So those populations are going to moderate over the next 30 years as some of the older generation dies. And that will help them with that problem. But they're going to have problems. I'm not saying it's smooth sailing ahead for China. But I'm saying they might be a bit beaten and battered by the time they get there. But they're going to win this race. They're going to win this race. The United States will not be the global economic superpower in 2025. We will not be it. It's not going to be the case. Even if our economy is somehow still being held together with duct tape and it's still functioning, the numbers bear out the truth. And this little deal with New Zealand is just how China's going to do this. China got smart. For a while, they were like, we should have this Brazil, Russian, India, Chinese currency basket. And then we should just shove that in as the new Bretton Woods standard and displace the dollar. And that's complicated right so all they're doing now is they're they're acting like a sales account manager and it's like well what can we do next who wants to, who wants to deal directly with us right so if you get half the countries in the world dealing directly with you and you are the number one exporter in the world and you also get into a position where you're the global economic superpower do you really care that someone says the dollars the world reserve currency at that point no because what have you done you've neutered the dog Right? You've neutered the dog and you've defanged the snake. Doesn't matter who says it, who holds tight to the old pair. Doesn't matter. I got half the world trading with me directly. You know, all I have to do is take my other trade partners that don't want to play ball and go, you know what? Maybe I don't need to trade with you anymore. And, and half of those will just fall in line. And, and once they do, the other half goes, we see the tide. So China takes over as a global currency standard, not because somebody says so. Because they just do it. This is our economic future. And this is, we've got to be prepared for this. Okay? Because it is going to matter. 
Now, it's not going to matter where monkeys are running down the street beating people to death with sledgehammers, anarchy matter, but it is going to change our ability to influence the world with both soft and hard power. And a lot of the spoiled brat shit we've pulled for the last 40 years is going to come back and hit us in the face. And a lot of people that we thought we were really cozy with aren't going to say, well, you're under the bus, but they're not going to, you know, if somebody else pushes us under there, they're maybe not going to be so quick to pull us out before the back tires hit us. That's our future. And this little insignificant thing that almost no one else has told you about, and Jack just spent 15 minutes on, there's a reason. Because in that story, if you don't look deep and see that one thing, China increases the power of its currency to the highest value ever. As they make this deal, and it's not even a done deal yet, you don't see the chess being played the way that it is. And that's exactly what's going on. It's exactly what's going on. It's a slow ratcheting up of the value of the Chinese currency in relation to the other global currencies in a bid to become an accepted global standard currency trade agreement. And they don't even care if, they don't really care if Iraq and Mozambique trade and convert dinars to, to yuan. They don't really care about that. They just want their business to not be tainted by transparent by, by being transferred to dollars and back anymore. They want it easy and simple, straightforward. And this is the thing. You can dislike communism all you want, and I'll get on board with you on that, and we can beat it up together. I think it's a terrible situation. But China is far more now what you'd call more of a socialist nation with the communist baggage, moving more toward free markets every day. And regardless of how you feel about them as far as their government, why shouldn't China be able to trade with New Zealand directly? Why, why should any nation have to use our money to trade with another nation? Who the hell are we that we even ever set that up? And is it fair that we have that advantage? And I think the answer to that is no, it's not fair that we have that advantage. But it's been advantageous. And the advantage is slowly being eroded taking away. And we need to accept that because even if we don't have an economic collapse, that is a huge piece of what I keep telling you is coming, a massive economic shift at the national and global level. But it doesn't end there. Um, this BRICS thing, this Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa thing is not going to go away. Um, do you know how you make somebody a really good friend? If they owe you lots of money, They owe you lots of money, like $900 million. They owe you $900 million. Think about $900 million. Million dollars. That's a lot of millions, 900 of them. That's almost a billion dollars. You just say, you know what, don't pay it back. Don't worry about it. That, I mean, would, would, would you be friends with a person that like made $900 billion worth of your debt go away? I think most of us would be pretty good friends with somebody that made like $9,000 of debt go away. Some of us would be really good friends with somebody that made $900. Somebody gave you a $900 credit card bill? Yeah, here's a check. Pay it off. You, you, you got to get some affinity there, wouldn't you? How about this? Brazil, 
to write off almost $900 million in African debt. Brazil has announced that it will cancel or restructure almost $900 million worth of debt with Africa. Oil and gas-rich Congo, Brazil, uh, Tanzania, and Zambia are among 12 African countries to benefit. The move is seen as an effort to boost economic ties between the world's seventh largest economy and the African continent. Official data in Brazil shows that its trade with Africa has increased fivefold in the past decade. The debt announcement was made during the third visit in three months to Africa by Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff, who attended the African Union Summit in Ethiopia. Strategic. Almost all aid is cancellation, Mr. Rousseff's spokesman uh, Thomas uh, Truman told reporters. To maintain a special relationship with Africa is strategic for Brazil's foreign policy. He added that most of the debt was accumulated in the 1970s and had been renegotiated before. A spokesman for Brazil's foreign ministry told EFE news agency that the debt restructuring for some countries would consist of more favorable interest rates and longer repayment terms. Congo Brazil owns, owes the most to Brazil, $352 million followed by Tanzania at $237 million and Zambia at $113 million. The other countries to benefit are the Ivory Coast, Gabon, Guinea, uh, Guinea-Bissau, uh, Martina, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sao Tome and Principe, uh, Senegal and Sudan. Uh, resource Hungary. Brazil has been increasingly expanding its economic ties with resource-rich Africa as part of the so-called South-South cooperation. Trade between the two blocks went from $5 billion in 2000 to $26.5 billion in 2012. Brazilian companies invest heavily in oil and mining in Africa and have taken on big infrastructure projects. Latin America's economic powerhouse has also opened 19 new embassies in Africa in the last decade, and the forecast is to grow 3.5% this year. But Brazil's hunt for natural resources has not always been easy in Africa. Last month, hundreds of protesters in Mozambique blocked the entrance of the Brazilian, Brazilian coal mine in a row over a compensation deal agreed after they were displaced. Human Rights Watch, a rights group, said farming communities had been resettled on arid lands and had suffered food shortages. The Brazilian giant Vale, which owns the mine, and the government of Mozambique said improvements were being made. In other words, yes, we're not the only company, country that goes into other nations and screws their people over. The Brazilians will do it too. But what you see here is more cozying up. And eventually, you know, a lot, it sounds like a lot of this money is just being written off. And some of it's being restructured. Eventually, Brazil, as long as they're going to do this smart, they can't just, because they have a balance sheet, right? They have a GDP and a balance sheet, and they got a certain standing. And if they write off all this debt, and it's no longer on the incoming side, even if no money's ever going to show up, and the outgoing side looks wrong, then they got problems there. So as they fix their own debt issues a little bit, they start letting more and more of this stuff. That Here's the deal. They figure these people are never going to pay us anyway, right? It's not that much money. I know $900 million is a lot to you and me. I mean, $100 million is a lot to us. A million dollars. But for a nation, $900 million, eh. Especially spread out to all these. And in comparison to billions of dollars in trade, $40 billion in trade in comparison to $900 million. And if you essentially infuse that capital into these nations by forgiving debt, Right, you're okay without the money now. So, and you already have strong strategic partnerships with them, and the the, the increase in trade that, that, it, that the money infusion causes more than offsets 
the the the, the loss of the, the the debt that may have never been paid anyway, you actually end up ahead. So this is a very strategic move. So now we see China making a very strategic move with New Zealand and Brazil making yet another strategic move. This is multiple strategic moves that Brazil has been made in making in Africa. And, and these nations, these five nations, are working on this together. And they're not doing it because they hate the United States. They're doing it because they want to win the game. They There's nothing wrong with, okay, let's look at it in our republic. Do you think the state of Texas would like to do a better job economically than the state of Florida? Do you think that that would be a goal, that, that there might be places where Florida and Texas both compete in the same sector, and Texas wants to say, you know, we kicked Florida's ass? Do you think that means that the governor of Texas wants to go to Florida and hit the governor of Florida in the face with a bat or something like that? Or do you think it just is, that's competition. That's how it works. We want to, we want to do the best we can. Well, that's what these, these nations are doing. And they're doing it collectively. And when you look at them collectively, they're a powerhouse. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're already economically more powerful than the United States when you add them all together. They, they really are. But they're not one nation. So that only goes so far. But as they all rise in their, their global economic influence, it's, 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 again, it's a turning point. It's a shift. This this stuff's not made up. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass, right? These things are not really being talked about. They're seen as minor news stories. They don't seem that important. They get pushed to the side. But what you what you're what you're getting here is again this new colonialism, this investment in infrastructure and development and energy, and a positioning of the ability to trade with each other sands the dollar. And, and that, I mean, if you told somebody that we'd be this far into something like this in 1985, they might have locked you up in a freaking moron, or what do you call it, a cuckoo's nest, or a, a nut house, right? They might have had, they might have gave you electric shock therapy. If in 1985 you said, by the year 2013, China will be trading directly with New Zealand and Australia, strategically beachheaded into Africa, investing billions of dollars in doing so. We'll, 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 the United States will owe them more money than you can possibly imagine, um, and, and, and they'll be in this position to take over as a world economic leader. You would have been laughed out the other side of a building for that. Hello, it's 2013, there it is. I wish I could tell you, I was telling people that in two, uh, 1985. In 1985, I had long hair. I was wearing concert rock black T-shirts, holy jeans, and playing football and, you know, drinking beer I wasn't supposed to be drinking because I was too young. I had no idea about any of this stuff in 1985. My point isn't, you know, go back to somebody saying it then. It's that no one would have believed it. So the reason we have to take that trip back and look forward and see where we are is so that when we look at the, the, the probable outcome of this shift... We don't go, oh, that can't happen. There's no way. I mean, come on. It's China. It's, Bra it's Brazil. It's Brazil. Come on. It, see, that's the attitude we have as Americans. See, there's, there's a problem in America. And it's the, it's the exceptionalist, elitist attitude. And there's two types of American exceptionalism. And there's the real exceptional components of America 
And there's the bullshit exceptional components of America. And the problem is whenever somebody says that it's a problem, everybody says, you don't know, we are the best at what? At what? We're the best at what? Blowing shit up? I mean, what are we the best at? Are our children the best school students in, in, the, in the world? No, we're not. You know, I mean, and there are things that we're really good at. Yes, there are. In spite of the fact that Obama gutted the space program, there's not another nation that's even gotten close to what we've been able to do in, in space. And that is a tremendous achievement. And that's another end of the spectrum. But all of those things are just stuff we achieve. And that doesn't make us exceptional. That just means that's what we chose to do. Right? I mean, and there's a lot of things that other nations have done that are equally impressive in different sectors and areas. And, and, and those, those are fine. But that's, that's where we get this arrogant exceptionalism. Like we think we're better than everybody at everything. Well, we don't win all the gold medals, do we? Some sports, we've never won one. And that's just one venue that demonstrates this attitude is, is wrong. This is what's exceptional about America. We have a system of government that could be the best in the world if we'd be our own guardians and execute on it. America is exceptional because we have a system that allows for every person to achieve, that allows for the protection of individual rights, that recognizes the right of ownership of private property. But we, the guardians of this republic, have allowed the scum running our nation today, to be there in the first place, to use things like eminent domain to deny property rights, and then to fix that, we say we got to get in front of anything that's environmental because it's Agenda 21, instead of just saying, hey, you know what? If what you're worried about is taking people off their land, why don't we just freaking come up with an initiative to outlaw eminent domain? Okay? Because that's the actual problem. The exceptionalism of America is in its founding The arrogance of, it, of America is in the mind of the citizen who sticks up a flag on Memorial Day and doesn't even know what the hell Memorial Day is about, drinks beer, eats hot dogs, and says, look at me, I'm a patriot. And we're better than everybody else. We're just human beings. I've met incredible people from, from dozens of nations that are just as exceptional in their way as any exceptional American that I've ever met. I said last week that I think that the greatest generation of Americans, the greatest generation wasn't the World War II generation, it was the homesteading generation. And we were sold the lie with the term, the greatest generation, so that we could sell to those men who did incredible things, you deserve it. And they would sell you deserve it to their kids. And those kids would sell you deserve it to their kids. And by the time we got to where we are now, kids are born thinking they deserve something when they show up. And everybody gets a trophy. Not in any way demeaning the sacrifices and the achievements of the World War II generation. But the guy that burnt his shack down before he headed west so he could pick up the nails, you know, that was, <laughs> that took some freaking determination, right? There was no boat, there was no tank, there was no airplane, you know, there was a, a, a flintlock and, and, and you head the way to sunsets. Here's a wagon or a horse, and good luck. I mean, and a lot of those guys, they didn't even know where they were going. They just said, oh, I'll keep going until I find something that looks good. But the future of this nation lies 
and people that will do even more. Because today we'll take technology and we're going to have to fix this catastrophe that they've created for us. And I do believe that true American exceptionalism, if the people will stand, put a stop to this crap, and realize who and what we are and the republic that we are, and damn well just start doing it and asking for permission after it's done. Okay, If we just start doing the things that need to be done, and when somebody gets in the way, we roll over them, and when they stop us, we just shift to the left and do it again somewhere else. You try to do something, they shut you down, move 50 miles and start over. Okay, Do whatever you got to do. I mean, the, the one guy on the forum that was talking about a tiny house said buy two lots adjacent to each other and, and keep the, the tiny house on, a, on a, a, a trailer. And every time they attack you for it, you know, ask for a delay, ask for a court hearing, delay this, delay that. And when you can't do it anymore, just move it to the other lot. And they got to start over because now it's a new property. Right, and then do it again, and just keep going back and forth until they get tired. Right, that's the strategy we need to use with a lot of things that we need to get done. Just freaking do it. People say it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. I say don't ask for forgiveness when you haven't done anything wrong. Do it and defend it. And this is what it's going to take. It's going to take this attitude of remembering who we really are and what we really are and the opportunity that was given to us when this republic was founded and to understand what we've squandered and to take it back. No, please may I have a permit, Mr. Bureaucrat. You know, if you can get one, get one. But if he says no, find a place you can do it without a permit. You know, or find out what it takes to get a permit. If you realize you're not going to get one, go into the most strategic place you can and get whatever you need to get done done anyway. Move into an unincorporated area. Do whatever it takes. And when someone stands up and oppresses your fellow citizen and you know it's wrong, stand alongside them and shove it back down to their throats. Start at every level and every layer from anarchy to political activism so that they don't know how to stop it. The elite have screwed the country. It's done. In spite of the good times that are coming, the, the end is clear. It's, it's, it's obvious. Look at the math. Okay, The politicians are making the most of it while they can, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they're using you like Kleenex tissues. The little letter they send you, the form letter in response to your concern, you might as well, they might as well just blow their nose on your shirt. So they're not going to fix it. You're going to have to fix it. Not enough of your fellow Americans get it yet. But just like World War II, when people got it, because not getting it meant it was over for us, I believe the exceptionalism that is American exceptionalism, the true exceptionalism, that's not we're better than everybody else. The, the, the true spirit of American exceptionalism isn't about being better. It's about knowing how good we really are. It doesn't matter who's better, who's worse. It matters how much do we have. How good are we? How tough are we? How truly wealthy is this nation? You can say, well, we're not because of the federal. No, I get that. No, look at the, look at it from sea to shining sea in the words of the song. Look at the people. In spite of the fact that we have people in this country that you could use no other word to describe them than sponge, there's a lot of hardworking, brilliant people in this country. We have done things no other nation has even dared to dream of. That remnant's there. And again, it's about knowing how good you are. And knowing that your future is a book that you have the right 
to write for yourself. It's your choice. Make the right ones and plow right through this coming shift. Because if you're busy building and doing, almost everything can crumble around you. And as long as you don't get hit by one of the blocks, you'll walk out the other side. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut is